Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. There it is, the famous Brill Building, right here on the corner of 49th and Broadway. You can just feel the history emanating out of this place. Mm, didn't Colony Music used to be here? Why, yes it did. You used to be able to buy the sheet music for pop songs and Broadway shows in the same building where they were once being peddled and sold to publishers. And now this historical building is home to another historical store that peddles its own sheets. CVS. Is that a joke? <laughs> a little bit. Okay. I can get behind it. Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the hit pack show, Beautiful, the Carol King Musical. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. You've got to get up every morning with a smile on your face and show the world all the love in your heart. And today we are going to show all the love in our heart for the legendary singer-songwriter herself and the musical carrying her name, Beautiful, the Carol King Musical. The earth-shaking show blasted onto the scene to thunderous applause that only accompanies a legend like King herself. But before we can do the locomotion, we need to lay our groundwork first. Beautiful, the Carol King musical is a jukebox musical with a book by Douglas McGrath that tells the story of the early life and career of Carol King, using songs that she wrote often together with Jerry Goffin and other contemporary songs by Barry Mann, Cynthia Whale, Phil Spector, and others. The musical had a pre-Broadway tryout in San Francisco, California at the Curran Theater from September 24, 2013 through October 20th with an official opening on October 8th. The musical sold out its entire run at the theater. From San Francisco, the show would cross the country, making its way to New York, which makes this the perfect time to introduce our design team. Book by Douglas McGrath, words and music by Jerry Goffin, Carol King, Barry Mann, and Cynthia Well. Scenic design by Derek McLean, costume design Alejo Vietti, lighting design Peter Kazaworski, sound design Brian Ronan, Wig and hair design by Charles G. LaPointe and makeup design by Joe DeLude II. The show would arrive at the Stephen Sondheim Theater on January 12, 2014, where it would play 2,416 shows, closing 
after over five years on October 27th, 2019. Upon closing, it was the 27th longest running musical on Broadway. The show would then go on to mount two national tours, a West End production, three UK tours, and several other international productions, including in Japan and Australia. In 2022, the Algonquit Playhouse in Algonquit, Maine produced the first regional premiere of Beautiful. And in 2023, the Green Room Community Theater in Newton, North Carolina produced the first community theater production of the show. The show was well received by Carol King, who herself made several appearances at the show, including in April 2014 to celebrate the show's opening, in July of 2018 to celebrate actress Melissa Benoist on her amazing performance joining her to sing the reprise of I Feel the Earth Move. And then finally on January 12, 2019, she celebrated the show's fifth anniversary by joining Chilena Kennedy to perform the show's closing number, Beautiful. The show would be nominated for seven Tony Awards that year and play away with two. Best Sound Design of a Musical for Brian Ronan and Best Actress in a Leading Role in a Musical for Jesse Mueller. The show also won the Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album. So, let's feel the earth move under our feet. show starts at Carnegie Hall in 1971. Carol King sings So Far Away. Then the audience is transported to Brooklyn in 1958. A 16-year-old Carol tells her mother, Jeannie, that she's going into Manhattan to try and sell a song to the music publisher, Donnie Kirshner. In the long tradition of mothers, Jeannie is opposed to her daughter's wish and in the equally long tradition of teenagers not caring about their mother's opinion, Carol goes anyway. At 1650 Broadway, she hears the 1650 Broadway medley. She then sings her new song, It Might As Well Rain Until September. Donnie says he will take it and hope she has others. At Queens College, Carol meets a handsome young lyricist named Jerry Goffin. They agree to collaborate musically and romantically, which in both cases turns out to be a fertile arrangement. When they go to Donnie's to play their new song, Carol confesses to Jerry that she is pregnant. Jerry asks her to marry him. It gives her an extra depth of feeling when she sings their new song for Donnie, Some Kind of Wonderful, which the Drifters then record. Together, they get an office at 1650. While there, Carol meets a new lyricist, Cynthia Whale, who is looking for a composer to work with. Jerry and Carol sing their new song, Take Care of My Baby, during which Barry Mann, the composer with the office next door, enters. Barry meets Cynthia and they decide to collaborate. As they begin to work, sparks fly. Donnie says he needs a song for the Shirelles, and the couples compete for the job. In Donnie's office the next morning, Carol and Jerry present Will You Love Me Tomorrow. Cynthia and Barry perform 
He's Sure the Boy I Love, Donnie picks Carol and Jerry's song for the Shirelles, and it goes to number one. And so, on either side of the same wall, a competition is born. The two teams turn out an amazing parade of songs. Up on the Roof, on Broadway, The Locomotion, and You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Jerry and Carol are at the taping of a TV special where their new song, One Fine Day, is being performed by the dazzling Janelle Woods. During a break, Jerry confesses to Carol that he is restless in their marriage. He wants to sleep with Janelle, and he doesn't want to lie about it. Carol is stunned. As the song begins again, she takes it over and sings it herself. Act two starts, and Carol is in a recording studio doing a demo of Chains. Jerry is off with Janelle, but he tells her he will meet her later. Nick, a guitarist, asks Carol to come sing at the bitter end sometime, but she declines. She's a songwriter, not a singer. The thing with Jerry is getting her down, so she goes and talks to Cynthia, who is also having trouble with Barry. They split up. Carol decides to tell Jerry he has to end the affair with Janelle. As she leaves, Barry comes in. He and Cynthia make up and play their new song, Walking in the Rain. Jerry shows up, but he is not making sense. He eventually has a breakdown. At the hospital, he tells Carol that he will end the affair with Janelle and that he wants to come home. She suggests that they make a new start and move to the suburbs. Barry, Cynthia, and Donnie come to see the new house. Barry plays their new song, We Gotta Get Out of This Place. Depressed that he and Carol can't do as well, Jerry leaves in a thunk for the city. While he is gone, it comes out that Barry and Cynthia have seen him with another woman, a singer named Marilyn Wald. Carol goes to Marilyn's apartment and Jerry is there. It's the final straw and she ends their marriage. At the bitter end, where Barry and Cynthia hear their song, Uptown, Carol explains she went to Los Angeles for a vacation and has started writing on her own. Nick, the guitarist from the studio who asked her to sing with his group, is playing there and urges her to sing. She sings her new song, It's Too Late. She decides to move to Los Angeles. At 1650, she says goodbye to Donnie, Barry, and Cynthia, and plays them a parting present, You've Got a Friend. In Los Angeles, she records her album, Tapestry. The session goes well until the last song, which she is afraid to sing. It's a song she wrote with Jerry, and she is afraid of the feelings it may stir up. Her producer, Lou Adler, persuades her, and she sings, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. The album is a smash. Carol is at Carnegie Hall for her concert and is met by Jerry, who apologizes for the way he mistreated her in the past and gives her a final prediction, you're going to go all the way. Carol takes the piano and performs for her audience. The The end. end. talk about the parts that we liked and maybe the parts that we didn't like 
Scooby-Doo-Wah. <laughs> I loved this show. The story, the music, all of it. Like, I... This is my second favorite type of like music genre. I mean, the first is that Motown, funk, soul kind of music, you know? And then second to that is that like folksy singer-songwriter, especially the 60s and 70s, that Carole King, James Taylor kind of thing. Just because the storytelling in it and the emotion behind it is just incredible. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. There, there's a whole different connection when there, you know, there are great singers today, and I don't want to knock any of them, right? I'm not knocking them. But there's a difference when you, you have a singer who's also singing their own work that they made and that personal connection, you know? There's just something different, and we had a lot of that in the 60s and 70s. And I think Carole King is just the definition of it. She put her, her life story right there sorry the phrase that keeps coming to mind is a modern phrase that a lot of the the, um the youths are using this today and they say put your whole puss in it right and it's it's follow me on this one and it, it basically describes you know the act of putting your whole heart and being into what you're doing and i think that that is the exact way i would describe Carol King. Oh, she absolutely. Puts, she puts everything everything of herself into it. And it's like you can't separate the art from the artist. Right. And well, and that's one thing that I just adore about Carol King is because she is this huge superstar legend, right? Mm-hmm. But in her actions and her mannerisms and just who she is, you would never know that. She doesn't go around and be like, don't you know who I am? Like, if you look at any video of her in relation to the show, she is the biggest fan of this show, of these performers. She's absolutely blown away. She has made her career as a singer, as a performer and songwriter, and yet she's like, have you guys seen, you know, she she is that, who, who's that actor? That Will is, Smith? Yeah, Will Smith, but also Mark Ruffalo or something that's like always in the back, but cheering people on, and it's like, should someone tell him that he's also a star, you know? That's like what Carol King was doing for this show. She was just like lifting up these incredible actresses that were portraying her and the whole company too. She was so amazed by it. See her perform, see her when she gets honored at the Kennedy Center. She is not just like sitting there and like, oh look, they're performing my music. She is like at a concert and she is living for it. And the fact that she champions and cheers on others I mean, you, it just makes you want to give her even more because she's so humble and genuine that way. So getting to see a show that really captured that and showed, you know, she went through a lot. That That is, that, I mean, she didn't have the hardest of lives, but if you think about it, we all had a first love. We all had, had that high school love. She sort of got trapped in a marriage in a way. Her first love, she got pregnant. And at that time, I mean, the thing to do was we got to get married. But to get married to someone who didn't want to, but did it out of necessity rather than want, and only to turn around and hurt her over and over and over, you know, to take that and rather 
you know, than being like, oh, woe is me, to turn that into art and success and everything like that is incredible. And I think that this show did a really great job of portraying that and really showing the importance of friendship as well. We've seen the friendships with Cynthia and Barry, you know. Yeah, well, and I think that this show is a good example of a biopic musical. Mm. I think that it it gives us an entertaining story that we didn't know. It feels new and fresh, yet somehow feels familiar. And I think that's exactly what people crave from a biopic musical. Also, as with all successful bio musicals, they wrote the story, Douglas McGrath, rest in peace. Oh, gone too soon. But they wrote the story and then added the songs so that it was a complete and whole show rather than, you know, being like, what What are the best songs of Carole King? And then we'll write a story around it. No, it was like, what's the story we're going to tell? Okay, how can we fit her music in here? Because not all of her hits are in that, that show. Right, not all of the hits are in there. And also the fact that there are songs that we didn't know necessarily that she was the one who wrote them at the time, you know? And so I think that it it does a beautiful blend of storytelling. Yes, yes. The last thing I want to mention before we dive in is Jessie Mueller. She was perfection. What an incredible impersonation and performance. I hate to be this naive person, but I feel like this was my introduction to Jessie Mueller, who has done incredible work since. And I know did incredible work before, but this was just... Wow. I mean, to come out of the gate and just... What, I mean, everything about her embodied Carol King from her mannerisms to her voice and not just singing, but talking too. Oh yeah. Like I, watching it, I was watching her. I was like, oh, this is a good performance. And then I watched some videos on YouTube of Carol King and I was like, oh This is really God. good. Well, I love that the show starts and she's singing, right? So far away. And then the next thing when she starts talking, she's got that thick Brooklyn accent, you know? And I was like, wait, what? And it just reminded me of that, like, why don't British people sing with British accents kind of thing, you know? And I was like, mm, yeah, that makes sense. If you think about a lot of the artists that have come out of Brooklyn, like Neil Diamond, for example, you know, they have this Brooklyn accent, but when they sing, you would never know it. Carol King is one of them, and, and just Jesse Mueller embodied that, and being able to switch back and forth was so, so good. So I guess this this is the perfect time? Yeah, I think right now is the perfect time for us to dive right into our little boxes. Little boxes, little boxes. Listen, 95 episodes in, I'm still doing it. Why don't we start with Set? Yeah, Set sounds like a Great foundation to start on. Oh, man. Oh, man, no. It's too early for the dad jokes. It's never too early for the dad jokes. Fair enough. The set was simple, yet very detailed and widely used. I know, that's just like a... Wait, what? That's just like a blanket statement. Let me explain. So I love the use of boxes in the first act. We had a lot of straight lines, hard angles, all that jazz. But as Carol emerges as her own, the boxes slowly disappeared, especially in Act 2, obviously, with the exception of the recording studio. 
But even that becomes an open thing. Do you know what I mean? So rather than seeing Carol behind a wall or something, or glass in a recording studio, she's like, we're with her in the studio and it's very open and the world is behind the box, if you will. So I loved almost that semblance of everything's in its box, everything is orderly. And as the world kind of turns to chaos, what do you do with that? And you just see that rather than it taking its toll necessarily on her, she adapts and uses that to her advantage. And I felt like that was a great commentary by the set. Again, interpretation by me. Right. Well, and I just want to add into that. I think that it actually goes a step even deeper than that. Because to know Carol King is to know the the icon that she was at the time, which was at the rise of second wave feminism. Right, so we had, you know, we had our first wave feminism. Which was like around when suffragettes were... Correct. So now we're moving into second wave feminism, where this is when Carol King was growing up. You had your 50s into your 60s, when we had the summer of love, we started experiencing what it meant to, you know, live outside of these boxes that people have put us in. And so, and Carol is living the, what we'd call like the average woman's experience, right? She goes from, you know, being a mother and serving her man and just being behind the scenes to being kind of urged to come out of her shell and be herself authentically in the public. And so I think that those boxes also help draw that parallel of what it is to embrace feminine ideas. And there's this this thought process that started with the Blue Stockings movement that language itself and everything that comes from that language is very masculine. It's very front to back. It goes, you know, it's all linear. And when we get into second wave feminism, we rebring this idea of feminizing our thoughts and changing them from straight lines to circles. So I think that the set and what she's going through is all reflecting that concept of embracing femininity and embracing feminist ideas and creating this more open environment. And that's exactly how the set reflects from going from our boxes to being open and in the studio. And I think that it also has this tone that goes from being very like yellow and sepia tone for me is what everything feels like in the 60s, 70s. But then when we start getting into the mid to late 70s, that's when we start adding the rainbow colors. That's when we start getting greens and blues. And I think that the set also kind of like followed that. Now, I'm not sure if that's necessarily just set or if it's also lighting, but I think that's one of the beautiful collaborations that set and lights can bring together. And that's what I got out of this show. That's interesting. I didn't, not knowing all of that, I, you know, I just thought, oh, look, we're, we're getting out of our boxes and out of the hard lines. But I like that idea better. I like that interpretation, if you will. That's really fascinating. I love that the bulk of the set resembled either the city. So we had like fences and metal kind of everywhere. And then the Brill Building architecture. So if you Google the Brill Building, what's interesting is like it's a mix of post-war and art deco in a way. It 
it's right before Brutalist took over. So if you think about the major architecture of the 60s and 70s, these ugly concrete. I'm sorry. Anyone out there who's an architect, like, God bless you, but I have strong opinions about architecture in a way. Those big slabs of concrete that are famous from the 70s and even in the 80s are so ugly. I have a love for, like, 19... 19- hundreds through 1940s beautiful stonework and that and even today the glasswork but we're not here to talk about architecture but it's you know a beautiful stone building about 12 stories originally but on the front there's this gorgeous gold like brocade yeah and 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 it's in the style of art deco and it's shaping that and so they really incorporated that in some of the shapes in the background. You see it especially with the 1650 Broadway medley. So I love seeing that. And then, of course, the recording studio. So even when they were in their offices, Cynthia and Barry on one side, Jerry and Carol on the other, they still felt like recording studios, these tiny little boxes. Everything felt small, you know. And and that's something I really appreciated about the show overall. All the places looked and felt small well, and that's even a- though they were on a big stage so it it, it really i mean uh, uh, look first of all it felt really new york which <laughs> i love but i love that until the end when all the characters were free to be themselves they were in these small spaces but it didn't communicate like we you know like why are we on this big stage and you have all these small bits it felt right to have that juxtaposition Right. There. Well, and I also feel like oftentimes in staging, you don't really get the feeling of how small it is to be in New York City because you're constantly in New York City stacked on top of each other. And it's really hard to understand that until you've been here. And I think that the way that they did it in this show did a very realistic job of that because I think it goes to Jerry's character a lot. And I think it helps support that. Yeah, feeling that trap feeling and all. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I got to say, like, the longer we live here and the more we see New York City style living depicted either on stage or especially on TV, it's like my new favorite thing of being like, okay, so how much do you think that apartment is? Or that's not a real, like, there's no way that they're living like that. You know, and I think a lot of people already do that, but... This is a show that I felt really embodied that New York feeling where I'm like, there really is just no space to do a lot of things. You literally, you utilize every inch that exists. And rather than, you know, building that that three wall set where, you know, the audience is the fourth wall and making it a little bigger so we can, you know, there's room to move. and They, Derek did a great job of being like, the audience knows this is New York. I, I don't have to build a 12-foot-wide office, even though really it's an 8-foot-wide office, for them to get it. I can keep it 8 feet, and they'll understand. It'll, the audience isn't dumb, you know? Right. Well, and I think this is this is going to do a beautiful job, what I'm about to say, of connecting the set and the costumes, because I want to move on. Now, with Carol King, I don't know why, but she is depicted as a sunflower in my mind. So... Sunflowers are often used as a metaphor for growing where things shouldn't grow because Mm -hmm. sunflowers themselves grow in unexpected places because they don't need a lot to thrive. And I think that 
in seeing Carol King kind of put into these cracks, into these boxes, she's kind of planted there, and then you see her grow and become her own and break out of these boxes. And you see that not only in the way that she's put into the set, but then the way that her costumes evolve as well. Because she starts in a very everyday, stereotypical existence of 1958, right? She has the classic, you know... Like the, the hair down in the high yeah, pony the, with the, the, the ribbon. Yeah, the Bobby Soxer. Yep, yep. You know, and then she, she is... She transitions into motherhood. She transitions into her career. And she is put very much in that classic silhouette again. She's put in these little boxes. She's put in these classic silhouettes. And you see her go into it. And then as she starts to go, you know what? I'm sick of taking care of Jerry all the time. I'm sick of being solely defined on the way that I take care of other people. And I'm going to define myself her costume starts to change. And you can see this reflected in Carol King herself and in the show where she starts to do flowing fabrics. She's choosing the silhouette she wants to portray. And sometimes that's she wants to look like a flower sack. She wants to just hide in these beautiful fabrics and just feel them against her body. And I think that the costumes reflect that so well and with the color palette because we start again in that very yellow palette where everything is very yellow very simple very plain not a lot of patterns not a lot of textures we go into the 60s and it's more subdued colors with a little bit of texture but not really and then you know tapestry really is a beautiful name for her album because that's what she starts embracing is these threads with all these different fibers all these different feelings all these all these different textures all these different tactile things that you can physically touch and the show does a beautiful job of just giving us that arc in everything we're seeing i mean you literally captured all my thoughts right there i could not agree more i i think the only thing that i would add to that is the color palette that was used is really, really beautiful throughout the show. There's a lot of blues and pinks, especially as we move into Act 2. I mean, I feel like in Act 1, we've got a lot of, like, pink that dominates it, but you see it transition to blues and blues and greens and harder into blues towards the end, but it's a dreamy and cool palette. And what I love is... I'm going to mention this again when we get to lighting, but you see that as we arrive towards the end of the show and Carol really comes into herself and becomes Carol King as we know it, she's at peace. She is tranquil. She has found herself. She's found her happiness. These kind of colors you think of as blues, as yellows, which coincide with tranquility and peace and creativity. And you really see that emphasized in both the lighting and the costumes. And, and and the hair, too. I mean, the hair is, is, was one of the things I really took away, which, you know, look, I know I'm married to a, a hair artist. Like, obviously, I'm going to notice the hair. But the hair did match the time, well, right? But the transition of hair for Carol was wonderful because one thing I really noticed was her hair was very light in the beginning. Not like 
platinum blonde, right? But this like light, dirty blonde, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it was. It was like straight. It was up in that high pony. She's having her best life. But it almost felt like it was, it kept slowly coming down as things kept kind of coming apart. And then by the end, she had this gorgeous, almost like golden hair. And it just flowed in the most beautiful way. And I think a good way to talk about that story arc is once again, when she's younger, she is managing her hair. She is, you know, it's, her hair is naturally wavy. It's naturally wavy to curly, and it is a big, wild, free mess, and that's what we love about her. You can see that in all of her album cover work. You can see that, you know, so that's what the real person, her hair does, and it didn't just turn that way, you know, just one day. So when she was a child, she it was very managed. It was very, we're going to comb it out. We're going to put it in roller sets. We're going to make it look proper we go into the 60s and we change our style into exactly what the 60s want we're still managing the hair but then as like like you said as her life starts to come apart and as she starts to come into her own she stops managing it and just lets it be right and now the look that we think of when we think of carol king is that just wild and free hair well for lack of a better term (laughs) she just let her hair down exactly and she it's, did. it's gorgeous. Now, I've, I've already touched on our next subject, so I want to dive into it, which is the lighting. I thought the lighting was great. We've mentioned this, tying it to sets, and, and we're going to tie it to costume as well. But to me, I thought it complemented the set in how it was built with the lines and the boxes in the beginning. It was definitely built in on the 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 upstage set where we saw the 1650 Broadway medley, also where a lot of the acts would perform. But as we made our way into act two and towards the end, the gobos and the the shadows and the shapes, they softened into these rounder shapes and curves. Mm-hmm. We really started, I mean, the, the lighting was used to help craft the, the picture of the stage, which I really, really love. You, you know, it, it blended with the set, you know. So not only was the physical set helping to shape that picture we were seeing, but the lighting was also being used as architecture to frame it, you know. Yeah. And I love the palette, how the palette, like I said, changed from Act 1 to Act 2, where in Act 1 we had these bright white and yellows and golds. And then in Act 2 we merged into softer whites and blues and greens. And I was like... Interesting. This is really beautiful. That transition from energy and excitement to peace and tranquility. You know, it's not that her success was... And that's the thing is, the show wasn't necessarily about her success. We all know she's a success. But it's focusing on her. How did we get to this legendary album? And that's the thing is, it, it didn't follow her until present day. This was just a show that went up to her famous album, Tapestry, from the 70s. So how did we go from where she started at 17 Mm -hmm. all the way to this incredible, soul-filled, beautiful album? Feminist icon. How did did we get this this 20-year span? Like, what happened there? And we see how all this energy and excitement and craziness transitions and kind of settles and oh 
this is who I am and this is what I want. I'd be interested to see like what would that lighting palette continue to develop as when we go from tapestry to beautiful the Carol King musical. Like would it maybe flip back the other way, but we'd see that golden yellow in a more positive light and that creative light. Right. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Right. We're focusing on what we saw. Right. Well, and the thing I really want to just point out, and I think that's going to lead us into direction, and that's that the heart of Beautiful the Car Carol King musical, I think, is about Carol herself as a person and what she did for feminists everywhere. Because she basically, at a time where it was not okay to display your raw feminine energy, or that your raw feminine energy had to fit a certain type that neither, either needed to be hyper-maternal or hyper-sexual. And Carol King came out and said, that's not who I am, and I'm the average woman. Like, I'm, I'm a regular woman. I don't, I'm not, I'm not this. I can't be this. And this is what being a woman means to me. Because when she came out with you make natural, like a natural, natural Woman, it really is a beautiful song about the complex nature of being a bringer of life. She didn't want to be a sex symbol. Yeah. And she didn't feel like she was a sex symbol. Instead, she was like, why can't I just be a woman? Right. Why can't I just be a goddess? Why can't I just be me? me. Why do I only have to exist... As a caretaker or as a sex icon. Exactly. And it's like, I, I but, am more But complex she did it without that. asking those direct questions. And, she just and that's did what's it. brilliant. She created this music that made us, as listeners, ask these questions. Right. And especially for me, seeing this show really helped me at a time where I was also trying to discover what it meant to be a woman. Because I was, you know, I obviously was not a teenager anymore. This. You know, I'm starting to come into my early 20s, my mid-20s, and it's, that is really when you start to question yourself as, like, oh, this is who I thought I was, now who am I now, or who am I going to become? And I think that the direction, especially being led by a man, really did a beautiful job of pushing those boundaries of defining oneself. And I think that the way that he pushed Jesse Mueller to discover those nuances about Carol King's story was what made the show so spectacular because not only on its surface was it this you know beautiful story about coming into yourself but there was just this deep level of complete understanding that Jesse Mueller gave and I think that's ultimately why I think she won the Tony because she pulled in a whole other level of her performance of being Carol King that just, it, it was breathtaking to get to see. Bravo. Yeah. And you know what? We've already started in on our next box. Let's just keep going. And that's direction. I think you nailed it. It was really well directed. And I didn't even think about this when I was putting my notes together. You know, a, a beautiful feminine story directed by a man. And if we, if, if we had started talking about this 10 years ago when the show came out, this, I don't think this would have been necessarily such a high topic, but hindsight, 2020, you know, we are here now and I feel like it's our responsibility to look at those things under a closer eye and be like, make to, to investigate maybe why something didn't work or why a story or a message didn't come through. And what's interesting about this is this is a very strong female story, female voice, and I think they 
both of those things really came through, yet there was a male voice director. So to me, that is brilliant. Right, well, because I think it does a beautiful job of blending what is happening for the feminine story while still making it relatable to people who are not feminine. And just to clarify, I mean, look, I know that maybe this is a, a, a idea that some people might be put off because we're getting into identity politics in a way with I, with discussion of feminism and that. But it's important to realize that it's... With theater the way it is now, it's not just about feminism. But, I mean, it goes... This, this idea expands to everything. You know, if you are telling a a black story with black actors, but you have a white director, it can get difficult because the experiences, it's all about the lived and shared experiences, making sure that those moments are coming through. So it's a testament to when people listen and are open and share in the best way. This is where the best theater comes from. You know, we talked a few episodes ago about Fun Home, how Sam Gold you know, created this brilliant, strong feminist piece. It was like an all-female team, and then there was this male director. How did that work? I guarantee you, everybody was just open and listening, and there was great communication, and nobody was trying to inflict one idea or the other on them, which is brilliant. That's how voices and ideas are heard. I would bet hard money on this. The same thing is happening. And and that is how we will continue to get stories told the way they need to be told. Not the way we think they need to be told, but truly the way they should and need to be told. Right, where it serves the story and the audience's experience rather than the idea of what the director wants. Right, it keeps the integrity in line. We don't tweak it for a, a certain purpose or to make the audience more comfortable or what have you. We're genuinely being like, this is the story we have to tell you. And we're starting to see that a lot more since the pandemic. And I don't know what people were afraid of before because audiences have been responding just emphatically. They love it. It's great to see these stories that it's like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. And that's the beauty of the way that this show was done was because I didn't really know much about Carol King before I saw this. But this story got me excited about it and got me excited to learn more and so it's a great generation it's a great generation gap filler yeah you know because it's like the older generation that grew up with this music can go see this show and get that familiarity but they can also bring their younger children and their grandchildren to this show to teach them about carol king while still making it a story that they can get into and make them want to learn more about it. And so when we understand each other, we come together. Exactly. And that's what this show does. So all in all, I mean, all this to say is that this show is very well directed. I felt that all the design elements were working in perfect concert to communicate this beautiful story, which I think we've definitely covered at nauseum. <laughs> I like how the show sounded and felt. And yet in action, it was very small. I've mentioned this. That juxtaposition was so wonderful. Big stage, big music, a big person in Carol King, this this huge superstar. And yet the show felt intimate, small, you it know. It didn't feel flashy. It felt Well, raw. I mean, it did feel flashy in, in the extent of a Broadway musical, you know. But it didn't have all the bells and whistles that could have come with it. 
you know? Yeah. We we didn't have huge dance numbers with a million people in the chorus. And, you know, it felt... That's the thing about this show is was such great... The, the directing, the style, everything about it matched the music perfectly. We were not reinventing the wheel to create Broadway big stuff. It was like, this is Carol King's music. You can't take something like locomotion and turn it into this big tap number. Like no, that's not I... gonna read. And so they the director was just like, We've got this great story, we have this great music, let's not mess with that. Let's work with it. And let's make sure we're at the end of the day, we're communicating the story. They kissed. They kept it simple, stupid. And in that, the brilliance lay. You know, don't mess with the great things you have. Uh, adorn it. Add to it just these little flourishes. But don't like, hack it's it like, apart. It's like you have, it's it's like Beautiful the Carol King musical is the best grocery store cake you could ever think of. Yeah. You buy it and then you go, you know what? Since this is so-and-so's 40th birthday... We're going to add just a little extra frosting and a little extra gold well, exactly. dust and a little extra, you know. But you're not going to take it home and deconstruct it and 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 re, you know, sculpt it to be a 15-layer right. cake. No. So the it was just brilliant directing to recognize that, that a, the Broadway musical, a bio-musical, was such great music, did not need to be your typical huge show the the work would speak for itself we could just adorn it and speaking of the music i mean what more is there to say it's carol king she's a genius and then some show me someone just show i i dare you like let's go let's take our the the microphones the computer everything let's go right now on the street and show me someone who doesn't like the music of Carol King. We might get responses of Carol Who, but I guarantee if we start playing some of her songs, they go, oh yeah, no, I know that song. Oh yeah, I know that song. And they'd like it. I'm sorry. I just don't believe there's anyone out there that doesn't like Carol King. You might not like her whole body of work, but I guarantee there's a song out there they're like, oh yeah, no. There's at least one. You know, everybody knows the earth is moving under your feet, okay? Mm-hmm. So, I love that. And, and one thing I want to bring up, while we're talking about music, is the orchestration. And we don't normally talk about orchestrations, but I feel like with this show, it's important. So as I keep, as I've mentioned before, Carol King's music, particularly this album, Tapestry, is from that singer-songwriter era of the 70s. It's that very intimate, me and a piano and a microphone, or me and a guitar and a microphone, you know, like a standards collection. Hello and welcome into the Copacabana room, you know. So I thought that the orchestrators did a really great job with this because the songs were musicalized for the for beautiful without losing their integrity. Yeah. They still felt real and folksy and heartfelt, and you could hear the soul that went into the albums. But, but, like, again, it wasn't overdone, you know? You can definitely hear the difference between, you know, Locomotion or Another Pleasant Valley Sunday and that. And usually, I mean, musical theater, it's all about not only the, the, the percussion rhythm, we love our twos and fours, but also about the different choral harmonies 
We love a good harmony split, particularly a major chord harmony. I'm not going to bore everyone with music theory here, but you don't typically hear that in pop music. You, and that's what separates pop from musical theater. So the orchestrators did a great job of keeping that sound of Carol's music, but then going, okay, but we've got to have this harmonizing chord here. Another Pleasant Valley Sunday. You know, there's a first, third, and fifth there. Uh, but we have that, ooh, cha duka cha ooh, cha Which, look, I'm not a choreographer, okay? I will never, ever claim to be a dancer. But when I hear that beat, ooh, and I'm thinking Broadway, that's got to be hard to be trying to choreograph to, right? Mm-hmm. And if I were a choreographer, I might look at the orchestra and be like, what are you doing? Can't we just do mm, cha, mm, cha, ooh, cha, ooh, cha? That's not what Carol King wrote, though. Mm-hmm. So I like that they really stuck to it. But, but they st- found ways to make it more incorporatable to do um, yes. like choreography. And I want to just add one last thing, which is the actresses, not just Jessie, but all the actresses who portrayed the role of Carol King did such a phenomenal job embodying that iconic voice both speaking and singing but that velvety when i hear the voice in the show i don't know why butterscotch comes to mind yeah just oh that beautiful voice that is like uh, unlike anyone so i've kind of touched on this already i'm sorry i jumped the gun on our last category which is choreography and this was the interesting thing about the show we've kind of mentioned it there's no like huge dance numbers you know yeah but we still saw the iconic moves of the 50s and 60s, especially from these music groups. When they would introduce the different music groups, we would see, you know, when the Drifters came on or the Shirelles or I can't think of their name who did You've Lost That Love and Feeling. You know, we saw those dance moves that got incorporated. So that's where we saw a lot of the choreography. I think the biggest number to me that I loved, the 1650 Broadway medley. Seeing all the different people in the different rooms and they all had their own move like that was great the dancing had a lot of energy and while feeling big it was very small and working with concert with the overall direction of the show which again i just loved you didn't need a lot of splash fatas that's not i just can't get over i'm just so appreciative of all of these hard-working designers who got it you know this is not the show with jazz hands, tap dance, backflips, 50 pirouettes. That wasn't this, you know. If you tried to do half the choreography from MJ the Musical and tried to apply it in here, I'm not just saying the Michael Jackson moves. It just it would have been like, why are we doing a big dance to feel the earth move? That doesn't, you know. It was just mellow. It was beautiful. And I would... I don't want to take choreography absolutely away from this person. They are a choreographer. But also, I feel like it was just like in the movements. Everybody's movement was meaningful, Mm -hmm. which I loved. The show has had several notable performers, including Jesse Mueller, Jake Epstein, Anika Larson, Jared Spector, Liz Larson, Abby Mueller, Ben Frankenhauser, Kara Lindsay, Vanessa Carlton, Chillian Kennedy, and Daniel Torres.
let's talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. Or in this case, her history. <laughs> the first thing I would say is Carol King's music is officially part of the theatrical tones now. Yeah. Is there. Fantastic. Carol King, welcome. We saved you a seat. We kept it warm. Our, you know, We've got jackets. It'll be in the mail. Your tote bag's also there. Also, I would add that it's a wonderful female empowerment story. I mean, do you want to add on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that this show does a beautiful job showing exactly how you can apply feminist thought to shows, to theater, to your storytelling abilities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and building on that, I think this is a highly successful and accessible new show. I think also it gave us a show that is a fully realized musical that is low cost for regional and community theaters to perform. Yeah, yeah. I want to move on to societal impact because one thing that you've kind of touched on that I want to reemphasize is it brought audiences across generations to the theater. Grandma, grandpa, and their grandkids could go, which was brilliant. And along with that, it introduced new audiences to the music of Carol King. Right, and it also helped display second wave feminism in a way that was more relatable to the everyday person. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. So... I think it's time to ask the question, is this show still relevant? Yes. I think that even though this this show is set in a particular time, I think that it has done a beautiful job of creating a capsule of what the 60s, 70s was for music for females. And so I think that having a nice biopic piece for people to remember generations after generations is a beautiful thing that, hot, get it, beautiful? <laughs> a beautiful thing that can continue to be told and find nuances to help entertain audiences through the years. Yeah, yeah, I think that's brilliant. For me, I love the music of Carol King, and I can listen to her all day. And this show seems to have found a wonderful place in regional and community theaters. It has seen great success in professional theaters around the world, on the West End, and on Broadway. And with all that being said, I would love to welcome a revival of the show. But in about five or six years. The show closed five years ago. But, I mean, with the pandemic, like two years ago. You know, pandemic years. Two years ago. <laughs> uh, I would also say that in this moment right now, there are other voices that need to be heard and stories that need to be told. So for right now, I think the best place for the show is off-Broadway and in regional and community theaters. But I am not opposed to it coming back to Broadway. I think I, it definitely has a place on Broadway. I also would argue and say that I wouldn't mind another tour. Oh, absolutely. 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 Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. 
We had the good fortune of getting to see the show three times, once in Salt Lake City in 2016 and twice on Broadway in 2015 and 2016. One of the first memories that I want to just mention about this show is the Salt Lake show. This was the first Broadway tour, first show to ever play the Eccles Theater, the new Eccles Theater in Salt Lake. That's right. Yeah. And it was exciting. You know, they built this, and it is, it's a beautiful theater. Anyone out there in Utah who's ever been to this theater, you know what we're talking about. If you haven't been to this theater, you should definitely check it out. Until the new theater that was built in Vegas, I think it's the Sphere, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that's the one. The Eccles was the most technological advan technologically advanced theater. It was one of the newest all that jazz, the way it was laid out. I mean, it's brilliant. They they, they put the thought in. And they did a beautiful job of creating a traditional theater experience for a modern moving audience. Yes. And the theater itself, I mean, if you're a performer and you get the chance to look out, the way it's designed is beautiful red paneling on the side so it looks like the, the canyons of Utah. And then up above, they have all these beautiful lights that make it look like the night sky. So it's a beautiful theater. With that being said, I do remember it's the first performance there and the sound was so off. It, it was... And look, I forgive. New space... We all just trying to get used to it, but the sound was loud in places and soft in places. There were a lot of times I couldn't hear the performers or I couldn't understand them. The band was louder than the, the, the performers, you know. And we were up in the what they call the, the third mezzanine. There's three tiers. And it was. I just remember being like, oh, oh, oh. And I just thought, is it the show? Is it the space? Like, what's going on? But, of course, when we returned for the next show, which, if memory serves me right, was Hedwig, it was so much better. It wasn't White Christmas. I think we saw Hedwig and then White Christmas. Okay. But, but either, either way, way <laughs> it, but it was great to see that show in that space, and I just thought, what a wonderful way to open a theater, you know. I'm sure there are other shows that people would say, you should have opened the theater with this show, but... What a great show to open the theater with, though. Carol King's musical, absolutely. To have that music be the first to be played in those in that theater, it was wonderful. Now, turning back to Broadway, the Broadway, yes. Jessie Mueller, I've mentioned already, but she was she was amazing in the role of Carol King. What a superb star! It was so. Wonderful to see that performance. Like, I still look back and I can remember her Tony performance and I can remember the performance I saw and they were they were just as great. Yeah. And I feel like we can't see a show at the Sondheim and not mention the best, bro <laughs> the best bathrooms on Broadway. Listen, anyone who's developing a theater... I it, look at the way the Sondheim redid their bathrooms. You have one door to enter, one door to exit, and everything flows. You enter by the stalls, you exit by the sinks. It's brilliant. I there's a lots yeah. of of stalls and whatnot in there. They they manage it so well. It is it's ridiculously good. Because then you can actually enjoy an intermission. You can go to the bathroom, and you can get a drink, and you can start talking about the show. Yes, not just get on your phone, talk about the show. 
all in all, I just, I remember really just loving the story and the music. And I couldn't get the songs out of my head for days. I loved it. Just walking around the city and having Carol King in my head. I adored it. Yes, ma'am. You'll be able to catch Beautiful at a theater near you sometime soon, I hope. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website for all things Stage Whisper and theater. You'll be able to find merchandise, tours, tickets, and more. Simply visit stagewhisperpod.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Mela and Billy Murray. <laughs> <laughs>